Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today, as we always do, by stating that the goal of this show is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but outside of GI as well. Today, we are fortunate to have as our guest, Dr. Ami Bhatt, the Chief Innovation Officer of the American College of Cardiology. In this unique position for a specialty society, Dr. Bott's charge is to fulfill the ACC's mission to transform cardiovascular care and improve heart health for all patients. A graduate from Harvard College and the Yale School of Medicine, Dr. Bott completed both a medicine and a pediatrics residency at Harvard and her adult cardiology fellowship at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, another underachiever on the shelf. Finally, she completed an adult congenital heart disease and pulmonary hypertension fellowship at Boston Children's. That's a lot of training. She directed the adult congenital heart disease program there for over a decade. Most recently, she served as the director of outpatient and telecardiology at Mass General. She continues today as an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Bott's interest in digital health strategy and the digital transformation of the cardiovascular field stems from her belief that state-of-the-art personalized care can be delivered to individuals in the community, empowering patients and creating stronger provider-patient partnerships for sustainable health outcomes. The ACC's innovation program has a robust platform to transform digital patient care and advanced technologies that are reshaping cardiovascular medicine. I had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Bott address the March PTAC meeting as a subject matter expert. Since I hold a similar position as Ami at the American Gastroenterological Association, I thought we would have some common challenges to discuss. Welcome to the show, Ami. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. We're going to tap your brain for the next half hour. So let's begin. <laughs> Ami, I typically start the interview by allowing the guests to introduce themselves uh, by telling the listeners a little bit about themselves. So I'd like you to go through how you became who you are. They know where you went to school and everything. But tell us about yourself. How did your career get to where it is today? Thank you for asking and for letting the audience know that I studied until I was, I don't know, like 70. But um, <laughs> starting in med peds and ending up in cardiology was a natural avenue for me to do my subspecialty of cardiology, which for the GI guys out there is adult congenital heart disease. So when kids grow up with congenital heart disease, and then they emerge into adulthood, adult cardiologists at that time when I first started practicing, really weren't as well versed. They were used to older people with coronary disease, but not the young person with congenital now being 30 something and wanting to get pregnant. And the pediatric cardiologists also were not trained in adult medicine and all the other things that happen to uh, cardiovascular disease adults as they age. And so it was a really great opportunity to, to innovate even then, right? And to, to help with my colleagues build this field. But uh, the average age of my patients was maybe 28. And so around 2013, they started asking things like, why can't we FaceTime? And I said, hold on a second, there's some privacy issues. Let me figure out how we can communicate. And the reason is when you have a discipline like this, that's a relatively rare set of diseases, People live really far away from the major cities and centers that we were building. And so how do you really get care delivered into the community where people live? And so uh, my virtual clinic started in 2013. And uh, every Wednesday afternoon, I would see people virtually. And then I realized, well, I should probably investigate 
some digital ultrasound and digital stethoscopes and other things that I can do in the community to help me care for them if they're not next to me. And nobody really got on board for a while because it's hard to change. Change is very difficult. And then COVID happened. And I happened to be director of outpatient cardiology, 60,000 visits a year at the time, and the only one who knew how to do telemedicine. And so it was a great opportunity to kind of use my passion for my job, help my colleagues and get through COVID. And after that, the idea of really creating larger systems of care that are based on allowing individuals to get care in the communities where they live led me to this position as, as chief innovation officer. So this is kind of how I got here. And, and as we're talking a little bit about how healthcare systems change, I think one of the things that has changed the most is we're moving from episodic to continuous care, but our models aren't really moving with us yet. And by models, I mean both our workflow as well as our payment models. And so that's therefore how I've landed in this area, which is if we want digital health, remote monitoring care in the community to happen, then we need to create the infrastructure for it on various levels. Amy, I love that intro. And you caught me by surprise. I didn't expect that route for your transition, but it makes it just makes so much sense because you problem solved your way into this phase of your career. It was a it was something you felt there was a need for that you didn't have an obvious solution, so you created it. That's fantastic. I, I can imagine what a heat map of the zip codes of your patient population must look like. It's, yep. You know, out all over the place and, and a lot in rural areas. A yes. lot in rural areas, right? And how do you how do you do that in a way that's fair to the patients? Well, maybe we should tap you again for PTEC because we're going to, our next session is all on rural care. Oh, great. Yeah. There's there's a need for an emphasis on that. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that's that's great. Let's move to my next question. Is you know, So you're Chief Innovation Officer at the American College of Cardiology. Not necessarily a position that every society or association has. So tell us about why this position was created. Tell us about that. Why did the ACC do this? Yeah, the ACC uh, had a a lot of foresight. Uh, Six years before I took this position, I am the second chief innovation officer. Mm -hmm. Six years earlier, my predecessor, uh, Dr. John Rumsfeld, and the CEO at the time and the senior staff recognized that the digital transformation of cardiology was coming. In fact, the digital transformation of healthcare was coming, but cardiology already having been so forward about things like pacemakers and remote monitoring was likely going to be at a leading edge and thought we should really prepare our 55,000 members for as this emerges. So they already recognized virtual care, remote patient monitoring, data analytics and AI, and then care at home as the four pillars of where digital care and cardiology might go. Please note, this was now eight years ago that -hmm. they thought about this. And they started building towards it. But the companies in this space were very early. So there was a lot of learning to be done, but very young companies, no infrastructure yet. Um, And awkwardly enough, COVID accelerated our ability to grow the infrastructure almost by demand, right? Um, And then also allowed these companies to grow as we saw influx of both dollars, but also kind of brains and people who knew it and data science. So it's now evolved to a point where we still hold fast to those pillars, the virtual care, remote monitoring, data analytics, and care at home. And in that, we are now really um, able to work with much more advanced companies simply because they've had a chance to really do their work, show what works, 
and now think about, okay, what's next? How do we scale? How do we find the right technologies for cardiovascular, but, but how do we scale such that patient outcomes get better? And, and you have this, you know, this is true for GI, it's true for primary care, for, for cardiology, all of us. We somewhat decrease the administrative workload that's happening. We, we make the joy of practicing the emphasis of what we do. So can we do both those things? And I think we can. Well, you know, I'm, I'm envious of you in your position because such a large compo- uh, portion of cardiology is electrophysiology. You, you can monitor things remotely. Uh, the tools, I can see the tools being deployed. The gut, the gut is such a visual specialty. And so we have challenges. And, and I'd like to just pick your brain here for a second. I would imagine most of the money made in the cardiology practice comes from performing invasive procedures. The same thing in GI. The great majority of the revenue in GI is coming from a colonoscope. And so how do you move your colleagues? Uh, you know, what, do you, what, what happens in your, in your everyday role in this position? I mean, you're probably bump, bumping up against the same inertia that I am. Yeah, no, so I think the... This gets a little bit towards the idea of how we practice. And we've spent a lot of time practicing at the top of the pyramid, if you will, right? We have chronic disease that I think of as kind of the base layer of that pyramid. People out there with chronic, usually multiple cardiovascular diseases, maybe some other organ systems as well, who just want to stay home and live their lives, right? And then they happen to have disease. Then there's a rising risk population, second part of the pyramid smaller group of patients, the ones we wish we could catch earlier, such that we could in fact manage them perhaps not interventionally, right? Or with an intervention that got to them so early that it reversed a disease or really took care of it early. And then there's that tippy top of our expensive US healthcare pyramid, which is I see severe disease and there are significant things that I can do to yes, make these people's lives longer, hopefully better, but at a really great cost. The resource utilization at the top of that pyramid is significant. It's not just in cardiology. And so our goal really as a unit, all of us cardiologists, is to move that down. I think even our interventionalists would be happier doing cases who got to them sooner because those patients will do better, right? They'll make a bigger difference. So you make less of a difference when you catch someone very late. You make a think a bigger difference when you catch them early for everybody, you know, for their quality of life, for their family, the time they get. And so that's really the model we're working with now, which is rather than the silos of, you know, this creates this revenue, that creates that. Now, having said that, the fiscal reality is you need procedures right now in a fee-for-service model, um, if that's what we're discussing, which is kind of 70% of what's out there. You do need procedures because right now they're just compensated at a different degree and people need procedures. So it's happening. But I think there is a holistic push to moving upstream within cardiology. And then eventually we can discuss, and maybe it's true for GI as well, even moving closer to our, our primary care colleagues and, and helping catch things even earlier. Yeah, we, we are totally focused in that same direction. If I put my sonar hat on, our job is to detect deterioration earlier in its course. Because mm-hmm. the morbidity is less, if you can intervene then. And actually, the therapies are less, less expensive at that point, And you get a much bigger return for the patient on that, on that early intervention. No, you had, me, you had me at hello here because we're, we're focused in, in exactly the same, the same place. 
Um, but you've you've mentioned a couple of times now, and I'm gonna I'm gonna move to this question because mm-hmm. we got to talk about the dollars. You know, I heard your presentation at the March uh, PTAC meeting on architecting value-based models for specialty care. How do you see, how do we deploy financial incentives in the specialty space? What are the necessary components? Yeah, so so I by no means am the value-based care expert. Um, I came to that PTAC really because of the movement towards healthcare in the home or healthcare in the community and how technology-enabled healthcare is there. So I'm going to address it first, maybe from that end, which which is kind of my, my area, which is, I think there are four big challenges when you think about how we're going to move to value-based models and why it's going to be successful, um, especially in today's technology-enabled healthcare. The first is there's a lot of complexity. And accelerating complexity really means earlier, scalable, kind of reimbursable population screening. I think that's going to end up supporting kind of primary care cardiology, fiscal and clinical infrastructure, right? Um, Because we recognize that access, increased access will mean decreased high resource utilization, not necessarily decreased utilization. People come up with this um, argument often, right? Oh, more access means more diagnosis, more utilization. Well, it means earlier utilization, which generally costs less than later diagnosis with high resource utilization. So I think that's one. The second is there's exponential information overload. So if we can create a payment structure, and this is the challenge, but that that really compensates for an overarching continuous care model rather than individual measurements. If you do one blood pressure within 60 days, you get paid. Well, well, that's not really helping us move towards continuous. So we need to figure out a payment structure that compensates for overarching model um, and not individual payments. And so I think that's the second thing we really need to do. I think drivers of health are important. So whether it's a social determinant, social vulnerability, even fragility in the elderly, access in in rural uh, America, those drivers of health really demand strong financial support. If we don't have value-based systems that include upfront financial support for promising certain outcomes in those populations, I think we're going to have trouble. We're going to leave people behind. And so a good value-based system is going to help us establish remote monitoring to ensure equitable access to those people. And so I think those are some of the things that I think about that we really need to do to be able to then say, okay, now what kind of payment model is going to address those things? Yes. So have you, you know, this is, again, there are so many parallels here with what we're doing at Sonar we have actually negotiated with the health plans for an upfront payment. We're ultimately on the hook for that on the back end. Mm-hmm. But, but when you think about engaging in a value-based care program and you'll have a year-long episode, it's 18 months from the time you begin this till the time you actually can get a gain-sharing calculation based upon a population over a period of time. We have to invest upfront on that. I'm totally with you. And yeah. have you been able to do that with the American so, College of Cardiology? Yeah, so, so I'm going to present to you the opposite end, which is how many Americans actually stay with the same payer uh, for 18 months, right? And we hear it again yes, and again, and, yes. it's, and it's true. And and I know that I, I don't like to say, I, I think we are coming together in that payers, clinicians, tech. We all understand together that that is a truth. It's it's not somebody's defense. It's, it's a right. truth. How do we get beyond it? So for example, 
we at the ACC have cardiovascular data registries. We have the largest cardiovascular data registry in the world. It is a structured opportunity for systems to have data collection for quality, drivers of health, patient-reported outcomes. And that infrastructure actually aligns with a culture shift mm. from fee-for-service to value-based care. So is that a mechanism in the future that we can use to then grow out the idea of, well, if these people are being followed and they're in a registry, do we have a better chance of keeping them in that care? And therefore, it makes more sense to payers that they know that they're in care, we've got a good way to follow them. And then we also know that we're likely to be able to successfully demonstrate outcome improvement. Yeah. Um, and so I think these are these are some of the things that we think about. Um, do we have an answer? Not yet. Do we have a value-based care symposium that Paul Casal, um, Henry McCants, and our group are going to lead later this year? Yes, because we need to keep crossing silos, bringing people together, bringing payers, bringing tech, bringing those who are starting their value-based care systems in cardiology. We do have quite a few starting out. Some of the Southeastern United States is probably um, a stronghold for that and in, in being the first ones to start doing it. But do we actually have evidence yet from the outcomes? We're really trying to find those. So by the way, if you're listening and you have a really great value-based care model that's working, please do contact me. We'd love to hear more. But but I think we're getting there. Well, you know, we've dealt with, at Sonar, we've dealt with the same issue. About a third of the patients change health plan coverage every year, mm-hmm. but, they, but they don't change their doctor and they don't, don't change their employer. And yeah. so- we have felt that going to the employer space, and since two-thirds of the risk in the commercial plans is borne by the employers as well, you know, anyway, that's that should be a focus. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think it's going to be a multi-pronged approach. It's not going to be a, you know, one-size-fits-all for the country, but, but I think as we get five solid different ways to go about it and we coalesce around them and we do it across subspecialty societies and primary care, I think this is our decade to start figuring it out. Well, from your lips. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Dr. Ami Bhatt, Chief Innovation Officer for the American College of Cardiology. Ami, I want to I wanna shift gears just a little bit here. Something I have learned, and you probably know as well, I've seen this at PTEC, risk is being pushed down from CMS and from the commercial health plans to ACOs and other population-based total cost of care entities. We now have payviders. How do we nest specialty payment models inside these payvider entities? Yeah, you know, it is a it is a challenging question, right? I think it's important to recognize that we're all going to have to work together as we're kind of pushing things earlier. I don't like to say down; I like to say earlier in the in the catchment um, of patients. But I think at the end of the day, we have to have some model for cost sharing and cost responsibility. And even though I just told you that I believe that we should have overarching continuous models for payment, I'm going to backtrack that. And this is the nuance of it. There's probably value in picking a couple key diagnoses from any subspecialty and saying, let's start here. Let's start with atrial fibrillation. And let's look at that. Let's look at that living from... I came into my primary care patient, how are they monitoring me to then they touched a cardiologist to do they even need the EP intervention? If so, so, so I think we do in a way need to pull back a little bit only because to build a good nested model, you need something to focus on, right? 
Um, and so, you know, what is that hinge point? What are we going to use as the infrastructure to, to learn upon? Um, and so I don't know in GI, you know, which diagnoses those would be, but for us, there's some where important to catch early, oftentimes falls earlier and ends up in the lap of the primary care. And so kind of population-based total cost of care makes sense because if you catch it that early, you're going to make a huge difference. So I think unlike what I said before about overarchingly, we need to have remote monitoring payment models for I monitored you for a long time. What does continuous care look like in value-based care? For this and thinking about being nested and thinking about primary care and cardiology or primary care GI together, I think it's really important that we probably start with one or two specific diagnoses where we can have full control. I mean, we did exactly that in GI, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's oh, and ulcerative colitis are yep. the two, what we refer to as high beta illnesses. Mm -hmm. So it, we took the entire GI set of major conditions and did a financial assessment and calculated a beta rating. In other words, a cost variability per yep. capita, not, not for not, not total, but per capita variation in cost and IBD is responsible for 50% of the total variable costs for the GI space. So that's yeah. why we focused on it. I'm sure that same analysis can be done in cardiology. You know, we have such good fiscal guys and data scientists. I'm sure they've done it. So I'm sorry, I'm not coming prepared with that. But I would think that it is likely that AFib and heart failure fall somewhere in that spectrum just because of the diversity of presentation the, the lack of clarity of when it first starts it sounds a lot like IBD, right? Like I didn't know I had it till I had it. And how do we, how do we make that recognition better? And then what's the, what's the process? What's the process when you screen early and you find something that actually gets you to the right care, but also doesn't alarm the patients, right? So I think, how often do you follow? Are you going to start treatment yet? Why are we not starting treatment? Why are you following me if you know I have this? And so I think there's a lot of conversation to be had and bringing the patient voice in is probably going to be really important. I don't know if we talked about this at PTAC, but I think having the patient voice when we talk about pushing diagnosis earlier, which means pushing responsibility earlier, both fiscal and then to the patient, probably really need to have the patient voice in there as well. Absolutely. We absolutely do. And we have to always realize, I, I harp on this in the GI space, these aren't Crohn's patients or ulcerative colitis patients. These are human beings who happen to have that illness exactly. and they're wedging this into the rest of their complex, busy life. Oh, ab absolutely. We have to have the patient voice in there. I mean, I'd like to close with a high level question. If you had to create your ideal value-based care model for cardiology, what would it look like? Oh, I've actually not been asked this before. <laughs> I think people would either stay in their homes or close to their community. They would somehow have good access, and I mean connectivity, right? They would have somehow have good wireless or connectivity or a place they can go if not them themselves. And that's where we would start because then from a cardiovascular standpoint, our monitoring would be comprehensive and, uh, and would be better. I think in between the infrastructure that we would create that would then allow value-based care to happen would be how do we bring in all these data points, analyze them, follow trends, and only alert the right people when necessary, both the patient and the clinical team. Um, I don't think it will always be a doctor on the end. I think it's going to be team-based care, mm -hmm. 
team-based care to the point of having community health workers and partners in the community, right? And some of those may be large organizations that exist in every seven mile radius, pick your company, but we're gonna have a real infrastructure and ecosystem for capturing the data, picking that up, understanding when it needs to go somewhere. And then the value-based care is just going to make sense because then we're not just nested primary care and cardiology, primary care, we're actually nested where we belong in, in the homes where people live. So, so I think that's what I, that would be ideal. You know, what does the rest of it look like? If we can establish this infrastructure, it's not going to be hard to then count up the dollars and look at the outcomes and look at the fiscal improvements in our ability to give efficient care and, and maybe even bring the dollars down. But that's a challenging infrastructure to establish. And, and I think it takes people like yourself and others bringing the right people together and saying, look, you're not going to do it alone. We're going to break down our silos and it's not me versus you. It is us. And we want everybody's profession to succeed. And so I think at the end of the day, that infrastructure is going to lead to ideal value-based care in cardiology. Well, that's a perfect place to, to end this wonderful uh, podcast. I, I've totally enjoyed talking to you for the last half hour. And boy, oh boy, I think we need to have further further conversations in the future because we're both trying to accomplish the same things. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been great. You're welcome. It was our pleasure. Thank you, Ami. And thanks to the audience for tuning in. You can access our podcast on most all of your podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and others. Learn more about the show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com. Lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at HCNowRadio and follow us uh, at Sonar on Twitter at SonarMD. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine GI care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well. Stay well.